0: Um, The First John and kind of left off uh, last week in chapter 2 we we had talked about verse 22 where uh, John says who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ this is the antichrist the one who denies the father and the son so the denial of Jesus Christ ultimately uh, almost all heresy all false teaching uh, boils down to denying something about Jesus in some capacity that he is Christ I uh, this afternoon, read a little book that I read many times, this little short, simple book uh, about the authentic Jesus, uh, dealing with some issues and just reminded that the real struggle that people have with Jesus is mostly either about his birth or his resurrection. And if you can deny one of those two things, you can basically deny all of the Christian faith. Uh, as I've shared with you uh, every time we talk about Sean. John, well, every time as I teach about it, the background of this is John writes probably the late 80s, uh, the first century to the area of Asia Minor, the same place he would write the book of Revelation, the same place uh, Peter writes First and Second Peter, uh, same place if he'll write Second, and John, he wrote from Ephesus, uh, much of what he did, you know, Ephesus is in Asia Minor, Paul wrote to Ephesus, he wrote the book, he wrote Colossians to Asia Minor, we know Paul wrote another book we don't have to the church at Laodicea, which is in Asia Minor, uh, First and Second Timothy is there, and it's a huge and personally important place in the Christian faith. And this this false teaching called Gnosticism had crept crept in, and Gnosticism basically uh, is it, a sect, is is a it's an insidious kind of philosophy that infected other than just Christianity, that teaches that whatever salvation may be, it's by right knowledge. There's a mysterious knowledge we never know what that knowledge is. By the way, I've never read a single book, a paper, or anything that told us what this mysterious knowledge was. And in the process of this knowledge, basically said fundamentally that that which is physical and that which is spiritual is completely separate so that you can live any way you want. And in doing that, uh, you're not at all seen against God. In other words, this physical cannot impact the spiritual. Because of this, and because they saw the physical as evil and the spiritual as that basically which is good, even though they're separate, they denied fundamentally that Jesus was both God and man. And their basic teaching was he was not the Christ. He's not truly the Messiah. He's not the Christos. That the, the, the spirit of Christ adopted him at the baptism and left him at the cross. Fundamental denial of Jesus. The most important church councils that, that we had, you know, in those first three hundred, four hundred 400 years, almost always dealt with something about the nature of Jesus. And whether it was the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Ephesus, uh, they would all come back and affirm the nature of Christ. Jesus, fully God, fully man. so, John says, these folks who were denying that Jesus is the the Christ are liars. And and I really dealt with that last week. Uh, In fact, they're anti-Christ, they're against Christ. Verse 23 says then, whoever denies the Son, which is that he is the Christ, then does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So it goes without saying, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you do not have a relationship with God the Father. You cannot have a relationship with God the Father and deny that Jesus is the Christ. You just can't have it. That is the ultimate of all sins is to deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we, we have to understand This is why the message that Jesus is Lord, this is why the sharing of the gospel is so critical to what we do. This is why we, at our church, emphasize this time and time again. We have to help people come into a connecting, a relationship with Jesus. They cannot come to God without it. And ultimately, you face God without having a relationship with God. If you face God without Jesus, you're eternally condemned. As for you, he says in verse 24, let that remain or abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. So, the idea of abiding is the idea of remaining. It comes from the word that means to remain, to reside. The Holy Spirit resides within us. The word of God should reside within us. There's just that sense of, of what it means. And that's why we talk so much about salvation being personal and having that personal relationship with Jesus, that which abides within you, that is part of you, that that is connected to you in that way, uh, that's a spiritual connection. And so it's a personal connection, it's the real you. So if the Holy Spirit, if the, the, the Word of God, that which you heard from the beginning, the gospel message, that's what that means. We talked about that earlier. From the beginning you heard the gospel. If that remains in you, if it's residence within you, if it's permanent, and the idea is permanence, That's the personal part. And that's how we have that personal relationship with God. To not have the Spirit of God, to not have that gospel truth permanently embedded in your soul is to be outside of relationship with God. He promised us in verse 25 that he would reabide with us. What he promised us, uh, us was eternal life. If you go back to the Gospel of John and see how much he talks about eternal life. And if you remember Um, Back in the summer, I preached uh, from John 13, and then at the deep fry, that Friday night Bible study, I taught John 14, 15, and 16. And constantly he talked about the Holy Spirit being upon you, abiding in you, being in you, that, that connection. And here John in his epistle, this letter that kind of serves as a teaching platform, affirms that. You have eternal life, life everlasting. Preached about that Sunday. From John 3, 16. He talks about having eternal life. Uh, he talks about it in John 10. You have eternal life. He talks about it, you know, when, when, he, t- when he talks about uh, the I am statements. You know, I'm the resurrection and the life. He believes in me will live even though he dies. And he who lives and believes will never die. Do you believe this? You know, in eternal life. I am Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's what it is. Verse 26 says this then. These things have I written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Several times in this epistle, he talks about having written to you. In 1 John uh, one four, I write these things to you so you may have joy. Towards the end, in, in 1 John 5.13, these things are written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. One of the first verses I remember ever learning was John 5.13. One of the first verses I ever understood that deals with the assurance of salvation. 1 John 5.13, these things are write to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know... For sure, permanently, you have eternal life. John says, I write these things because of those trying to deceive you. The Gnostics, the false teachers, were trying to deceive you. It was a deliberate deception. It was a going against what they had been taught. Anytime there is true false teaching, true heresy, it is a deceptive spirit. Paul talks about that. So when you can live in the world in which you live in, And, you know, know, in my 40 years of ministry, I've seen different things being emphasized. When I first started in the ministry, uh, there was a lot of, in the 80s, we were always concerned about the cults. We always taught about the cults because the cults deceived, the cults deceived. And now, you know, now it is this concept of taking Christianity and just letting other things be true also, and it, we call it syncretism, and, in, and everything is relative, and all truth is the same, and all truth is true, or there's no truth at all, and all religions are the same, and we've got to include these other religions in different ways to God. All these things are taught to deceive us. But more importantly, they're taught to deceive either the non-believer or those who are new believers into understanding what is wrong, uh, one of the things that we teach and preach on constantly here is Jesus. If you notice, we, I, it was by GMs, why. I mean, i got to finish a series up on God. I mean, I'm going to, you know, it's starting in March. I'm going to have two months on Jesus, you know, on the cross. And, uh, you know, then I know in, in the spring and the fall, and my series in October is just on the authentic Jesus. You know, when I preach about other things, but it's always going to come back to Jesus, everything just gets funneled back to Jesus. Because fundamentally, that is the single most important thing we can know and teach about is Jesus. Amen. And when you think about the, the number of people that come to our church who are not either followers of Christ, cross, you have a lot of people who are followers of the cross come here, Christ come here, or, or they're very new. They need to really learn about Jesus. You know what I found out? I need to learn about Jesus all the time. <laughs> the, the things I enjoy most in my personal study is almost always connected to Jesus. So much more, I, you know. I, to be honest, you know, I do a lot of study about a lot of things, you know. And, and the Old Testament, yeah, it's good. I like the history, but yeah, uh, you know, I just got to read through Ecclesiastes. All right, it's whatever. That's boring. That's just depressing. And uh, you know, and, and you know, i I've always everybody's concerned about the church. Okay, what's the doctrine of the church? You know, the doctrine of the church. You know, okay, I got it. But when when I focus my learning and my study. On Jesus, that's when I really grow. To be honest with you. I didn't grow a whole lot in my lengthy study of uh, Isaiah uh, back of a few months ago. it's okay. Sorry. Ecclesiastes, you know, I did it because I need to read it every two or three years. learned nothing. But when I read the Gospel of Matthew every time, it sucks me in as I. Prepare for the deep fry uh, and keep reading Revelation over and over and constantly studying it over and over and over. It sucks me in because it's Jesus talking. It's just Jesus talking. It's all, the, almost the entire book of Revelation in red letters. It's Jesus you know, telling how he was dealing with something. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing, the setting aside, the commissioning which you receive from him abides it remains in you. So you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as he is anointing, teaches you all things, and it is true and is not a lie. Just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Now, when he says you don't need to be taught, he's not saying you don't need to be taught ever. But what he's saying is, you have been taught the fundamental truths. They are coming back, and they are trying to deceive you. You already have what you need inside. You accepted Christ. So everything that you need spins off what you already have, Jesus. You don't need anything in addition to Jesus. Now, little children, he says. And it's a beautiful term, Technia. This is, remember, John is old by now. He's older than all of y'all. And <laughs> all but one of you. <laughs> Figure it out. But no, he's older. He's just, in his writing, he's been around Christianity the entire time. And he's just saying, listen to me. Um, when he appears... At his second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, listen, you know, as a follower of Jesus, you know, I, you know, I'm, ready, you know I'm ready for it's coming. I'm in a hurry, but I'm ready for it. I don't, I don't want the idea of when he comes, you know, just kind of shrinking in shame because of something. That's what he's saying. If you get caught up in these false teachings, and when he comes, you're going to be so embarrassed you believe this garbage. You don't want me. You, don't, you know, I don't want people be, be caught up in some of these things. Some, I, well, I have people all the time come up to me with these crazy things they learn and they want to talk about, and are like, oh, man, don't do that. Well, I need to remember this 1st You'd be ashamed to think that way, man. <laughs> then verse 29 kind of bleeds into chapter 3. If you know that he, that is Jesus God, that is righteous, Jesus, I'm sorry, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, it's not that if you practice righteousness, you will be born. It is those who were born of him, those who've been born again, the evidence is their right life. So here's the thing, the way you live gives evidence to whether or not you're a person of faith, including what you teach. This then spills over into chapter three, which is, uh, you know, I've scheduled to build the first 10 verses so we can get, get through that, which talks about. Righteousness and the way we live our life, in practicing sin and all those other things. So let me just, I'm going to start this off in, in this chapter 3 by talking about three fundamental doctrines of our faith. I probably don't spend enough time sometimes just talking about doctrines that, that are important. You know, and, and this is the group, you know, GROW is a deeper Bible study than on Sundays. So y'all come, you get a little bit more depth than on Sundays. Uh, so the, the three fundamental doctrines, there's more I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about... Um, Regeneration, I want to talk about um, justification, and I want to talk about uh, sanctification the, the, all the all the Asians there 's a few other Asians but those and they all go together. Regeneration is the term to be born again it is it is the idea of being regenerated if you know if you want to regenerate something, you want to get it going again. It comes from the word geneo to be born, reborn. And it's the idea of what happens at our salvation, we are born again. We have a new life in Christ, okay? And and that life is in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within us. Christ, you know, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells because we have been saved from our sin. We've been cleansed from our sin, forgiven for our sin, and we're a follower of Jesus. We've been regenerated. Justification is the new standing we have with God. It's a legal term, and, and and it deals with righteousness. Justified righteousness comes from the same Greek word. And justification is the right standing we have with God. It is not that we are, sometimes we say we're made right with God. Well, regeneration makes us right with God. Justification is declares us right with God, that God forgives our sin. Jesus takes our sin, and in a legal setting, we are no longer held accountable for it. We have been justified or made right, declared right, I should say, with God. Then, um, the other thing, then, that we talk about is, um, The idea, the concept of sanctification is the cleansing that occurs, that we are cleansed. We are sanctified. It means to be set aside. To be sanctified is to be set set aside. It's not that you're perfect. It's that you, having been regenerated and justified, you are now sanctified. Sanctification is an ongoing process. Regeneration and justification occur once. Once. To be regenerated is ongoing. Now, all those things initially happen together at the moment of salvation. But the moment when grace of Christ comes upon you, and in that grace, he gives you faith that you accept him, and you, con- you repent and confess. All those things happen together. We, 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 a lot of times people try to talk about which happens first. Humans worry about which happens first. From the standpoint of eternity, from God's standpoint, they happen together. We're regenerated, justified, and the sanctification process goes forth. We are now talking in the world of sanctification, how we live our life. What we're not talking about as we go forth into how we live in sinfulness and all that righteousness is not whether we are justified or regenerated. It's this process of sanctification how you live, and that's an important distinction. Make sure you understand this in light of the fact that Gnostics taught that you can live however you want and still be right with God. And John's gonna say you can't because if you're right with God through Jesus, you will live on the whole a certain way. And one of the dangers they always faced was slipping back into a pagan world and a pagan lifestyle. Paul deals with that constantly. Slipping back into paganism, slipping back into paganism. Um, all of that was there. In fact, as early, you know, as, as Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council in, in 48, 49 AD, when James and Peter and, and, and Paul and and the other apostles all talked about you know, how the Gentiles become followers and James said, this is what I declare to you in, in, in you know, verse 19 of, 50, of Acts 15. He said, uh, do not make it difficult. Do not make it difficult for the Gentiles to be saved. But then he said in Gentiles, and basically what he said is this, don't slip back into your pagan ways with adultery and eating things that have been offered to idols and the blood, don't, don't go back to paganism. Because once you're a follower of Christ, You're going to live a different life. Now, here's what he says then in chapter 3, as we start to see. Verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. I think we sang that, didn't we? We sing good, good father, right? Didn't it start off that way? See, I I don't know if y'all planned that or you just got stone cold lucky. Yeah, okay. I'm going to go with the luck because I know you guys. And so <laughs> how great the love. Remember we talked about God so loved us and one of the last Sunday and one of the virtues to Christian faith is the love of God that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because they did not know him. Now, he's making an important statement. We are God's children because of the love of the Father upon us. We are his children. We, we belong to him. We've been regenerated. We've we've been justified, sanctified, set apart. We're his. And the world doesn't know us because they didn't know the Father. It doesn't know him, it doesn't know us. Remember Jesus said in John, if the world hates you, it's gonna hate if it's because it hated me first. You know, we always forget that. It, the world hates Jesus. Now if they can change Jesus, and they can get rid of the virgin birth and the resurrection, then they'll love Jesus. But as long as that Resurrection's there. They're going to hate Jesus. He's going to hate us too. Beloved, a term of endearment. Now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we'll be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. So when He appears, when He comes again, we're going to be like Him. We're going to be like Him in that we're going to have a resurrected body. I was uh, reading quite a bit this afternoon on the resurrection. And a reminder our, our, when He comes, we're going to have a new body. It won't be this, it'll look like me. I don't know. Hopefully, I'm the younger version of me, the you know, younger, skinny version of me with a lot more hair. And, uh, you, know, you know, still the charming uh, boyish good looks, but still have that. <laughs> but it, it'll, it'll be a true body. Just It'll be, you know, metabolism is so much. It'll be different. It'll be a spiritual body. But we're going to be like him. That, uh, the, the, the joy of eternal life is that we're going to have a resurrected body and we'll have it as it was always meant to be, without sin and imperfection. That's going to be cool. We're going to be like him. And then verse 3 says, And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is poor. So we are, we are purified ourselves. We are sanctified. We, we're purified because of Christ. We're fixed on him. We're, we're living that life. Okay, We're going to be like him. We are like him. He abides with us. We're saved. We're different. And then verse 4, this is what becomes important. Everyone then who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Let me put this in the context. It's not that everyone who sins, because we all sin. The previous chapter, he reminds us we all sin. The key becomes the word practice. It comes from the word doing. It's written in the present tense, which means, is in sinning. In the habitual way, in light of the previous life, it, they living over, and the key is lawlessness. So, so understand. To John, who who looked at Gnosticism with as just a, a in, in just the harshest of terms, as rightly so. Just as Paul looked at the false teachers in Galatians, we saw last uh, last fall, and talked about it being a net, false teachers and anathema, condemned. In the same light, he saw Gnosticism. Listen. If you think the apostles were just lovey, touchy, feely guys that it's all okay, no way. They loved sinful people, but you brought heresy into the church. They went after you like you had no idea what they were coming after. The Paul who persecuted Christians to the point of death was the Paul that when you brought heresy in, he wasn't going to get you to the point of death, but he was coming after you. John? Man, John would come after false teachers with everything he had. Peter was the same way. You know, we always say, well, hate the sin and love the sinner. Well, they hated the sin and and the sinner, when it came to false teaching, they couldn't stand them either. So, I mean, instead they didn't love them. But I'm telling you, false teaching can never be tolerated. It'll destroy you. And I can go to church after church it has been destroyed by false teaching. So here's what he says. Lawlessness. He says it's not just any sin. It's lawlessness. And this is what the Gnostics taught. The Gnostics taught that you can live however you want. There's a technical term for that called antinomianism, which you don't care about. But I just gave it to you anyways because you can say, well, that preacher knows a lot of technical terms we don't care about. But it means against the law. We're not talking about Ten Commandments. No saying. Well, say, well, see, what happens if you break that fourth commandment? You're in trouble, which we all break every week. We break the fourth commandment because we don't worship on Sabbath. We worship on Sunday. Okay. And I've told you before. Don't try to figure out how to baptize Sunday and make it the Sabbath. Not gonna cut. That's not what. You can't do that because then you can start changing everything. It's not that. It's not that you broke the the, the sixth commandment. You know about murdering somebody. It's not that you broke any. That's not that. It is the spirit of going against the holiness of God and declaring that what God says is wrong is right. That is a lawlessness. It is a rebellion against a moral construct. We understand that morality comes from God. As a follower of Jesus, I'm not talking about Ten Commandments. Morality comes from God. My moral fabric comes from a God who I believe loves us and created us in his image. I love God. I love others. I understand that whatever I do against God, whatever I do against other people, is to violate that moral ethic. Are there specific examples in the scriptures? Yes, and that helps me. But I understand that. To, go, to think that I can live however I want, and for the Gnostics it would be to live in gross immorality, in total perversion of life, in debauchery, even to the point of participating in idolatry. To think that you can do that and follow God through Christ, or however you want to do it, is wrong. That is lawlessness. He's not talking about the individual sins you commit, because we all commit them. He just said it in the previous chapter. And we all have to go and confess those sins. He's talking about The life of sin. The habitual practice. And this goes on and on through these next few verses. And that's what he's talking about. So the teaching was you can live however you want. And you're okay with God if you have the mystery of the knowledge. And John is saying there's no mystery of any knowledge. And you can't live how you want. You have been born again. You have been regenerated. And justified, you are now sanctified. You cannot, in that condition, practice what the Gnostics practice. You cannot. So, that is a firm warning. Now, we all know we sin. He doesn't deny that because he already said in chapter 1 we sin. This is not about sinless perfection. This is about giving yourself over to a rebellious lifestyle. So, to say, God, I know that I'm not supposed to do this because it violates your will, but I'm going to live this way anyways because I'm still your follower and and I'm going to be okay. You can't do that. And I know Christians who are true believers who now live in sin, and they're miserable too. That's one of the things, one one of the signs that you know you're a father of Christ is that when you're involved in sin, you feel pretty lousy about it. And technically, eventually you're going to come out of it. Because if you don't come out of it, you're then probably not really a father of Christ. So, you know, when I sin, I tend to feel bad about it. Like, oh gosh, sorry. I need to repent and get it right and work on it. So, verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order or for the purpose of to take away sins. Because in him, that is Jesus, there's no sin. Jesus, sinless. He came to take your sin away. So you can't rebel against that and say it's okay to sin. You can't live in opposition to that. No one, in verse 6, kind of rephrases what you've seen before, or to me, rephrase in verse 9 as you say, no one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or knows Him. Now, again, we're not just talking about committing acts of sins. No one who remains in him. We just talked about you remaining in him through this faith. You're not going to live this lifestyle of sin. He's talking about what the Gnostics, not just any sin, but that lifestyle of lawlessness, lawlessness, lawlessness. Little children, he says, here's something, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. One of the most important tasks that I have is to protect the church I serve from deception. It is one of the things that I take most seriously is to make sure that false teaching doesn't creep out. I'm not saying things that we may disagree upon about you know whether the creation was seven literal days or seven you know epic periods of time. I didn't talk about that. It's to make sure that no one sneaks into our fellowship and teaches what is false to them, to the youth, to you. Nor do I want someone to practice ongoing a life of sin. And influence you. So if I know that their life is lawless. Or they claim some aspect that is lawless. I'm going to share the word to somebody. They need to stop teaching. Don't care. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I don't want them teaching our children. I don't teaching our youth. And I'm going to teach you. Because we can't let deception fall in. And, and all the pastors agree. They're all that way. They're all careful. It's not just me. It's not like they're all going crazy, letting heresy sneak in. And I got to say, hey, Joe, why are you letting people teach false things? It's not like that. Though you and I do need to talk about that one part. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's not. Like that. We all feel. We all know that. Because protecting followers and lost people. From deception is my responsibility, it's that way because I know what it says in here, and we do that, and we're so careful about that. And sometimes things will be popular. And I'll, you know, remember when that book The Shack came out? Everybody's reading The Shack, my last church, all oh, they all love The Shack. And one day I got up and said, The Shack is full of heresy, it's false teaching, and it's of the devil. Wow, oh, no, Pastor, how can you say that? It's a bestseller, yes, yeah, it is, because it was. So one day I had to spend a few moments teaching them why the shack, all the things about the shack that was wrong. All I had to teach them one thing, that was enough. Now some of you are all uptight because you love the shack. You got the pop-up version. Okay, I got you. That's my job. It's my responsibility. Because here's what it says. No one can deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. And verse 8 says, and the one who practices sin is of The devil. (laughs) Oh, God, that word devil, diablo, the accuser. For notice this in verse 8. The devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, what the beginning of what? From the beginning of him being created, basically. The devil has sinned. In other words, sin entered with the devil. He was the originator of sin. Who came up with sin? Did God come up with sin? No, the devil came up with sin. The devil made you do it, man. And my job is to help <laughs> to help understand that. I think about that because I remember the song that came out in the 80s, Shut the Door, Keep Out the Devil. Y'all remember that song? Some of you old enough? Well, Park <laughs> Debbie members, we had a group of old ladies. I say old, oh, they were probably my age now. They seemed old when you're 28 or nine. <laughs> and these four older white ladies, Would sing that spiritual, shut the door, keep out the devil. Stiff and straight laced, like without any emotion, any swaying. It was the worst thing you ever heard. And some knucklehead told them, that was really good. You ought to sing that again. And they must have sang it half a dozen times. (laughs) And I was going to say, the devil's just laughing. He ain't shutting no door. You practice the lawlessness. You have sided with the devil. The Son of God, gosh, is great. Look at that, The end of verse 8. We're going to close with this verse. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So why in the world are we going to tolerate the works of the devil he came to destroy? And why are you going to follow that lifestyle, and that teaching? You can't, not if you're a follower of Jesus. Well, it's time for us to end so y'all who have wanted kids can go get them. And uh, I'll see y'all one of these days.